Hey everyone, you're listening to the Desi Vesi podcast and I'm your host Akash Pat. We are back after a short hiatus and boy have I missed you all and of course speaking to my guests. It's been a rough couple of months and I'm super grateful for all the love and support that's come my way. But most importantly, I hope all of you are doing well and are safe and gearing up for the vaccination drive in India. I'm super excited to be back as we have a great lineup of guests in the coming months. While I was away, I've been thinking long and hard about how to enhance the listening and knowledge sharing experience, and I'm very thrilled to announce that we have some awesome initiatives in the pipeline, so stay tuned as I will soon share them with you. On that note, let's move forward to this week's episode, which we may almost unofficially call as a season 2. bringing together a series of emerging fund managers over the next couple of months i want to kick start this week's episode with anjali from waterbridge ventures an early stage vc fund based out of bangalore and delhi anjali has got a fantastic experience and background both being an operator and now being a partner at the fund let's head in and listen to anjali's story and what she has to share about her experience and time being in venture capital So Anjali welcome to the podcast it's been a while that we've been planning to do this so I'm really excited about our conversation today how are you I'm doing good I'm super excited to be here and yeah glad we are finally doing this and uh, hope everyone is like safe and family is doing well but yeah excited to have this chat with you It's been a very tricky situation as I was telling you um but hopefully everybody at home on my end also is completely recovered at this point and what i'm really curious about finding out from you is how are things right now back home in india especially from a professional standpoint given that we're riding on the second wave of the covid crisis talk to us a little bit about how has that impacted you both personally and professionally yeah i think it's um, it's obviously an like incredibly difficult time for everyone and i think this time around it really feels like a pandemic if i may and i guess last year and the first wave was um, really about statistics and numbers and this time it's about names really it's about friends family portfolio employees near and dear ones so i guess everyone has been impacted at some some level and scale so uh, i think uh, all of us we hope like you know tough times don't last they say but tough people do and that's the you know hope in which each of us are marching forward uh i think to the point on just the uh, the startup world and uh, bangalore is your hometown too and i think uh, i'm in bangalore as well and bangalore has been particularly impacted as we speak we're topping the charts for all the wrong reasons in the, uh, the covid charts and i guess from a deal making perspective uh, of course the startup ecosystem is uh, you know living in a bubble of its own and at least the first quarter of this year we saw like the highest both like deal volume and deal flow uh, over like five quarters and uh, we've seen like the burst of unicorns as well in the you know the all through april uh, but i think uh, with our like boots on the ground i should say that uh, definitely focus has changed uh, really to first and foremost well-being of our own like portfolio portfolio employees their extended families and uh, all of us are trying our best to prioritize vaccinations uh, prioritize healthcare access support uh, 
and uh, just ensure that uh, you know teams uh, are first and foremost well and healthy uh we've also because of the large scale nature of you know the disorientation to say the least that covid has caused upon all of us i think we are also seeing up to like 20 30% of teams being uh, unwell out of office etc which has put like massive strains on uh, on startup founders and startup teams right startups by design are frugal lean uh, and therefore no one like budgets uh, to, you know any kind of bend strength so i think uh therefore just the sheer grit resilience of not just the founders but the extended teams as well has been um you know very very inspirational and uh, uh you know humbling i would say as well um i think deals are happening uh, as usual um i think timelines have obviously slowed uh, uh, you know i think people across the ecosystem all stakeholders whether it's um, investors founders uh we sees the support teams lawyers the diligence folks i think everyone understands if someone's impacted that it's bound to take a few more weeks so extra and i think people are largely empathetic and uh, going with the flow and not putting any kind of unnecessary pressures so you know during these times i would say yeah well, it was a very interesting point that you bring up because selecting and developing employees future managers is such a critical task for any ceo and it's been a big concern for many companies particularly in leadership roles when you take a look at statistics and um, i was i happened to read something very recently where it spoke about 72% of companies will have an increasing number of leadership vacancies over the next 3 to 5 years um simply because there's an inadequacy when it comes to filling positions and this is without just covid now covid actually accelerates and ensures that there's this vacancy numbers that's kind of growing and you just talked about how important it is for portfolio companies to keep that in mind and to make matters worse even corporate boards often make radical decisions right when they feel that ceo is underperforming and you often find out that the ceo is more likely to be fired if their performance of company is not doing that great and one of the first things that a lot of people do is try and change the organizational structure so i'm very curious to explore this a little more further and see how this pans out given the current situation in india how are these fast paced companies thinking about acquiring talent and more importantly retaining them because fundraising growth all of this is up and down but what is really important is trying to build and hire the best talent that you can actually sustain the growth sustain what you're hoping to 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 hit especially in terms of your uh quarterly results yearly results and especially ensure that the momentum continues just beyond the crisis as well so it it's a really testing time for all the founders especially first time founders who haven't really been through this sort of a fast paced growth when it comes to building their companies so do you have any special insights having spoken to yeah. some of your portfolio companies on this front and what kind of challenges are they facing when it comes to building their bench strength yeah no it's a it's a great question in fact like you said at pre covid itself uh, talents always been a big fight right and especially at the um, at the early stage uh, it's it has always been a challenge to attract like top quality um, talent uh, in early stage and we play at the seed to series a and it's even harder there when uh, you're literally living like round to round i would say uh, i think a couple of things um, over here and you mentioned about c uh, about boards being impatient with ceos in large scale companies um, i think it's also 
becoming relevant even at the uh, in even like the earlier the abc ecosystem as well i would say it's just that i think the one thing that founders are really being tested for right now during these times is just founder something we call founder scalability it's just that whether you're a single founder or your multi founding team have each of you first interface sorted your roles out you have like very clearly defined paths and uh, charters within the company and our founders themselves able to scale as the company scales from you know c to a b c because the company is really going through a very different set of challenges both you know um, to external stakeholders in the growth side as well as internally from a culture building side and therefore uh, do you as a founder you know can you scale and grow and change uh, with it is is really the question uh, that we we always ask and uh, you know many founders also make the mistake of not like hiring ahead of the curve uh, not hiring people smarter than them or um, uh, you know believing that we'll wait to hire senior talent when we do say like a larger round etc so i think um irrespective of when you fill positions and some of that might be uh, you know it's a fine balance between what i say tactical and strategic but i think what's really important to do from day one and what really needs to be the common uh, you know thread as you scale and grow is just the whole culture building part of it and that's something again that's taken like front and center stage uh, during this pandemic i don't think uh, things like employee culture employee wellbeing whatever being discussed at board meetings before and for the first time that's come come up on the agenda and that's actually uh, you know like become really important especially given like a remote workforce uh, workforce and none of us uh, this is truly unprecedented at every level and scale right no one can claim that they prepared for covid you know so i think so we have been really emphasizing on setting the culture right like what kind of long term uh, you know culture building and what's your vision and mission for your employees as as well and they are as important to stakeholder as your investors or your customers um, are so i think that's the message that we have been driving home at least and the other thing is really about what your cap table construct um, is and uh, you know can can really investors be your partners and we were discussing this as well uh, the other day akash about how you know you choose your investors wisely and if you have like one or two of them on the board are they you know are they really kind of fully supporting you in your journey are they like literally an extended arm for you and uh, you know or even more experienced than you in some of these things and therefore are able to give you the the advice that is right for the company uh, first and foremost so i think uh, a lot of founders i hope can also like rely on their uh, board for the right uh, for the for the right uh, you know advice and that comes from you know choosing the right set of investors uh, to partner with i completely agree with you and there's a part in which you talked about company culture and i believe that making succession process part of your company culture is probably the most important thing that a ceo can do today and many senior managers and even leaders think that their companies uh which are adept at succession planning um are the ones that will eventually last and and and, and continue to develop in a more sustainable way and the problem is that although succession planning is essential it's just the first step it's very important and equally crucial to develop the leaders and managers so they can execute the business strategy to deliver these results right so that way companies that succeed at finding and nurturing 
natural leaders within their own companies, um, within their own workforce right now, are the ones who can grow their businesses um, and do do better uh, given such a tricky time that we're all facing through. And most people, um, leaders, people within companies have not seen this kind of climate that we're currently in. So yeah. I'm hoping it's a great learning experience for um, first-time founders, second-time, anytime founder that you are. But more importantly, I think this this is building, helping us build more sustainable businesses. People are thinking about these challenges. And I think these learning experiences will be very helpful, especially in the long term, when companies think about building and scaling more sustainably and ensuring that they're just not, you know, raising and burning money as quickly as some of the companies. Absolutely. I think the other big change that has happened is exactly that, that the focus has just, uh, you know, shifted from, what I like to say, vanity metrics to to the real metrics, right? And to things right. like, you know, economics, to cash. Can you monetize ahead of plan? Um, can you like think of, you know, better growth hacking strategies to bring down um, your CAC? I think uh, some of those questions uh, are now being asked earlier and it's like, okay, let's not just chase one North Star vanity metric, but let's also see if they're really building a long-term you know, sustainable business, as you put it. And clearly investors want like more clarity on an exit path uh, as well. And hopefully, I think uh, at least externally, the massive IPO pipeline that India is seeing this year and fingers crossed, many of those will go on to successfully list uh, should definitely, uh, you know, give us, uh, you know, a much needed boost in optimism uh, as well, I think. That's a fantastic point as well. And uh, I'm very optimistic about how this pans out for all founders and hopefully when we come out on the other side whenever that is whatever the timelines look like we're all in a better place in terms of wisdom we all have more information and experience in terms of building companies and more importantly the industry benefits the most the founders are a little more wise the investors are extremely extremely helpful knowledgeable have grown with time and this helps them also pick and back founders at the right time who need the right support as well. And all of that is extremely important. I think this is a very important journey for us as an industry to go through. And I'm glad that some of our portfolio companies are also having to experience this. Now, I wanted to spend a little bit more time on you and um, find out about your journey into venture capital because you've had a very unusual path, let's say, because spending some time at uh, EY, and then you had a little bit of a small stint at Mintra. Talk to us about how all of that played out for you and why venture capital and what was the tipping point for you that said, I want to get into VC. This is a space that I can see myself be in for the next 10, 20 years or so. Yeah, I think I'm an unintended or accidental VC. I would say, I don't think I ever um, As grew up wanting to be one or even when I was <laughs> it's such a I, I don't <laughs> I think the new generation today I'm meeting a lot of them who are in college who are like I want to be a VC I'm like I I don't think anybody in from at least our generation grew up saying I want to be a, I want to be an investor we're all accidents yeah I mean I, it's it's too it's 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 heartening and I'm glad that uh, you know along with wanting to be a creator and influencer you're saying that people also want to be a VC so I'm glad people are saying that but uh, I mean just to take a step back just coming back to my Bangalore timeline I would say like just about when I started my career in 2006 I think the VC industry itself 
uh, was like super early in its infancy, I would say in India, if I'm not wrong, it was the year in which I think Sequoia and Axel even set up their India um, offices. Uh, and so it was obviously, uh, if not non-existent, still, I would say it was just super uh, early for VC itself. And really, I think all the action has happened in the last few years. I think uh, even if you just see the total deal value, we have literally hit double digit billions and you know crossed uh, 10 billion in VC investments like less than five, six years ago. So that just kind of tells you how young the entire ecosystem and industry in India is. So I think it's it's still very early days for the industry um, as well. Uh, and so I think my my story has largely been very serendipitous. And uh, as you always say, hindsight is 2020, and you can always connect the dots looking backwards. But I started off as an investment banker in 2006 with the Ernst Young banking team. And like most uh, uh, geeky, nerdy, freshly qualified CAs, I assumed I'll spend a couple of years and go and get myself in um, MBA, it was also an easy ticket out of the house. Uh, but I think uh, I ended up spending a decade till 2016. And uh, so, you know, 10 years and no MBA later, uh, I found myself uh, very closely involved in the startup ecosystem. And between 12, 12, 2012, by the way, was the year that Flipkart became a unicorn. And that I think was a, a monumental, uh, you know, event in the ecosystem again and so those few years I spent uh, just starting to build out an early stage founder network uh, just started like literally people were raising five seven ten million kind of uh, early stage rounds and that's what I started getting uh, involved with and uh, you know the joke in EY was that most of my peers were doing like you know 50 60 like really really high ticket deals and here I was doing like low ticket deals but I was just very convinced that I wanted to be part of the early stage ecosystem and that's where the energy and excitement was and uh, for a long time I'd done like one deal a year and I said no no things have to move faster uh, and very serendipitously got the opportunity to uh, uh, to meet with um, Anand who was Mintra's uh, CEO and they were uh, you know, building out a team over there. So spent three years between 17 and 19 um, at Mintra and had like, uh, I think, you know, after spending a decade as a banker and doing consulting, they always say consultants are blind. So I think I really felt like I needed operational expertise. And if I really want to call myself a consumer tech, um, you know, sector, if not an expert, like somebody who's keen about the sector, then I really needed to gain operational experience and actually learn and figure how a PNL works. And I think so that was my real intent um, of moving into Mintra. I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to get like really into the startup ecosystem uh, myself, also expand my network significantly just outside of the uh, banking CXO board investor network that uh, EY you know, uh, uh, gave me largely. And I think the three years I spent there, I got to do like a lot of fun, exciting, uh, stuff. I worked with two CEOs. Uh, we did a ton of, uh, uh, you know, celebrity brand deals, the first of its kind in its industry. Uh, I also had the privilege of running and leading their um, accelerator program. We literally took it from idea and concept to about like 17, 18 investments at the end of three years. And that, that was really the pace at which we were, uh, you know, running every single um, uh, day, I would say. And that Really, the word D2C was not even coined back in 2016, 17, I would say. And literally at Mintra, we were 
super proud that we created like the first wave or the first cohort of made for e-commerce brands um, in India where we chased uh, manufacturers, export houses, second generation business houses uh, and encouraged them to start create exclusive, uh, exclusively for the group, uh, you know, brands that are made for digital. And literally it was this, again, steep learning curve uh, uh, for me and like working closely with these founders, uh, you know, sharing platform insights, consumer insights, and literally creating brands from uh, scratch and scaling them to like 100 crores in, in, in that two, three year journey. So I think it was, uh, like I said, just uh, a fantastic three years for me. And it was around that time that uh, Waterbridge in early 2020 was launching Fund 2. And uh, I don't want to uh, keep going on about the story, but uh, Manish Ketarpal, who's our founder and India managing partner, and me actually go a long way back to my associate days at uh, at EY while I was at EY and he was the uh, Providence India MD. So we've always been um, acquainted. He's always been someone I've looked up to for advice. Uh, he's always been like a mentor of sorts to me. And so we very, again, serendipitously, all my travels in Mintra used to take me to Delhi where most of our portfolio is. And he used to always be in Bangalore, where a large part of the Waterbridge Fund One portfolio was, and I think amongst uh, many of the coffees and dinners we've had, I think uh, it took me a while to get convinced that I want to be uh, getting back to the investing side of the business. But I think what excited me was the fact that I could really, uh, once again, if I may, like expand my consumer tech thesis beyond just e-commerce and start looking at other spaces, and uh, more importantly help set up Waterbridge's Bangalore office and, uh, uh, you know, give us like a permanent presence in Bangalore where all the action is obviously. And that's when I said, uh, hell yes, and uh, moved, I would say. So like I said, it's all as cliched as it sounds. It's fairly accidental and uh, like I said, serendipitous. It sounds, it sounds great. And how is it working out for you? Are you <laughs> what's the, how's the journey been for the last five, five and a half years? What have been some of your biggest takeaways? Well, I think um, I think firstly, just as Waterbridge, we are emerging managers. Uh, we were set up in 2016, so we're we're also, if not like infants, we're toddlers. I would say in the uh, VC journey. So I always joke that we're a full stack VC. We do everything from raising money and managing our LPs to investments to sitting on our boards and deal flow and um, and all of it. So we're like a lean and mean uh, team, I would say. And I think fundamentally the part I've loved the best, like I said, was really expanding our thesis within consumer. And as a fund, we've always believed that we won't invest in sectors we don't understand and where we can't add value. So that really is our strong differentiation in terms of just the kind of professional networks, founder networks, operator networks uh, that we can bring to these early stage founders. And we play in the seat to series A. So we sign up to a two and a half million first check. So at that like super early stage of companies where it's largely just the founders that you're betting on. In most cases, there isn't even uh, uh, employees or an extended founding team. Uh, I think it's super important to, uh, you know, come up with, uh, you know, the color of money is all the same. So we've always questioned ourselves, like what's our value add construct? So I think, so we therefore work backwards, I would say from what our sector strengths are and decided to invest only in sectors we understand. So I do consumer, my colleagues, uh, you know, spend significant 
you know, uh, like literally decades in enterprise um, uh, sales, whether it's like in uh, like India mid market, whether it's like global, uh, India for global, spent a lot of time on fintech, on healthcare. Um, education is is very, very strong across our portfolio and one of our strongest, I would say, having backed both on Academy and Doubtnut. Um, so that's really been our formula, if, if you may, for early stage investing over here. And, uh, and also we really uh, believe that tech needs to be a differentiator and we don't just mean in terms of um, having like a digital only presence or a, or a platform play, but really can it be like a well differentiated moat and you know, to stitch it back to the question you were asking earlier in terms of what COVID has taught us, it is literally also just tech adaptability and using tech to your advantage to scale, grow. Um, and therefore we kind of, if you look at all our consumer bets, they're all actually, uh, you know, platform plays. So we haven't done any uh, D2C products, for example, or anything that depends significantly and is offline heavy on distribution. So that's broadly been our thesis, um, I would say, and we're, uh, like you're saying, we, we learn um, every year. And I guess um, prior to that, for me, some of the uh, biggest learnings from my own journey is just, uh, uh, you know, actually the fact that you can't be, uh, you know, static uh, when it comes to any sector. So you can call yourself an e-commerce expert, but everything has to be contextual to, to time. So I think it's important to just keep uh, evolving your own thesis and to keep like, um, you know, learning more and more and like continuing to speak to folks. And so for the large, for me, what one of the best things that Mintra did for me is just the Mintra alumni or the mafia as we call it and where everyone just landed. I think that gave me like a significantly unfair advantage in terms of the founder networks within various other unicorn companies. Uh, and then therefore the breakout teams out of those that, that end up becoming like some stellar founding teams. And we have quite a few of those in the portfolio. So we have teams who are ex uh, Baiju's, who are ex delivery, who are ex dine out. Uh, and they end up, uh, uh, you know, folks that we, uh, we fund and back. I'm more curious about finding out a little bit about your thesis because one thing that I've noticed being a consumer we see as well is that it's one of the hardest sectors in my opinion and I might also be biased because I do this as a day-to-day. -day. Sectors and industries within the bigger D2C or the consumer sector change almost every day. It's very seasonal because user behaviors change so quickly. It's very difficult for us to predict a whole lot, especially in these sectors, right? Now, you and I were talking a little while ago about the social sector, the gaming sector. We're talking about trends and patterns about how people purchase and behave online. You've had that experience working over at Flipkart with Mintra. You've seen that sort of play out in the early years in India as well. But I think today, these sectors have evolved faster than ever before. COVID obviously has been a bigger change in tailwind that has come about in the consumer sectors. How difficult, in your opinion, Anjali, it is to predict and invest in these sectors given how quickly things are changing in the industry around us? You're absolutely right. I think uh, things literally evolve um, super fast. And the thing about the VC industry is that you really need to catch trends early, right? You can't like get into a sector after it's already uh, like made it big. So the challenge is actually staying ahead of the curve really and to see what are the emerging trends 
across these sectors and which ones to bank and bet on early. I think that's really um, the tough part and the risk that you take at that seed stage. And um, I think it's also about studying a lot of patterns that have um, emerged. And if you just see the way e-commerce has evolved in India from the Flipkart and the Amazon days, or even when you know Snapdeal was around where it was largely horizontals, it was deeply discount driven. Um, you know, they really, Flipkart had to create uh, cash on delivery just to drive customer adoption. And uh, really they, you know, the, they created the market for, uh, you know, digital consumption in India. And obviously they burned a lot of capital and cash through it in unit economics. It, it was the days of vanity metrics, um, if I may, over unit economics. And, and then came like the, uh, the vertical platforms, right? We saw the Lenskart and First Cry and Zivame and uh, some of these verticalized, like big baskets, some of these verticalized platforms um, come into play where for the large categories, at least, uh, you know, like say Nika with Beauty or Big Basket with Grocery with like even Lenskart that matter where it was actually in some of these cases, digital first and then offline. So the Omni was actually inverted, meaning it was digital native and then you go in, um, offline and then it was also about launching private labels in order to get some of the unit economics to uh, make sense because the assumption was that adoption has already been driven now how do you retain and keep customers on your platform how do you build a brand how do you build trust and uh, how do you improve margins and unit economics uh, uh, as well so i think that was the 2.0 um, if you'd like to call it and what we're seeing now and what uh, i internally call consumer 3.0 is really um, the great dispersion, as I like to say, where um, I think people will continue some of this verticalized play, but it's not just going to be for commerce and transaction, but it's also going to be a lot for engagement. And one thing that I'm very, uh, I've been extremely curious and spending a lot of time on is discovery-led commerce, where uh, we're seeing with the rise of D2C brands uh, and a lot of these long-tail boutique brands emerging in India that, um, it's super expensive to create a brand.com platform and to acquire customers and drive traffic to it. And considering the the uh, the situation with the horizontals currently, it's largely Flipkart, Amazon brands don't get discovered on these horizontal e-com platforms. So therefore, as a D2C brand, uh, what are the choices? What are the distribution choices really that you have? And with offline retail just being beaten and you know battered thanks to COVID, uh, there are like far and few options for distribution um, today. And the other, you know, pattern as a consumer, uh, have, having also been a consumer in this space from like day zero, if you notice and open any of the apps across, you'll always find a search bar on top, you'll find a homepage and then you straight, you know, jump into browsing based catalogs. So, uh, so I'm like very curiously looking for companies that challenge some of a, just from a user journey perspective and be also, give opportunity to some of these D2C brands on, uh, you know, strong alternate distribution and discovery platforms, um, um, you know, in India. And where do these brands go to get discovered, especially knowing now that the pandemic is going to like rage on for 12 more months at least and offline is going to remain, if not shut, sporadically open and shut, uh, uh, you know, across um, the big cities at least. So yeah, I would say discovery-led commerce, and uh, you know that's that's something that we're super excited about. Is there anything that you've seen that has come about during the last eighteen months 
that has piqued your interest, which might be a little off thesis for you, but has really made you stand up and take attention of? I think um, gaming certainly has, and I think we discussed this earlier as well in one of the sectors that have tremendously benefited from COVID, in fact, is gaming in India. And I think it also got a lot of uh, uh, attention thanks to the PUBG ban and the uh, uh, and the entire piece around, you know, local folks coming up and trying to like grab some of that market and share. And of course, all the action that we've seen on the real money gaming side with the mega rounds of, you know, MPL and Dream 11 and all of that. But I think even, uh, you know, in the casual gaming side of things, um, no one would have imagined, say, 18 months ago that uh, India could potentially be like a very, very large market. And secondly, I would also say female gaming audiences. Uh, I think that's something which no one would have imagined uh, would be like a super large um, market and not just large, but uh, these are audiences that stay highly engaged, more engaged than their male counterparts and also the willingness and ability to pay. Um, so I think gaming definitely has been a beneficiary. And uh, uh, the other thing, uh, as a result, I think, we have seen about like, you know, Twitch and Discord, and this is what we were talking about, these verticalized digital communities where people like, you know, gather with peers uh, who share the common, like who share common interests. And I think Twitch has done that like beautifully in the West. And uh, in India, I think what we're all excited to see is, can we have like a, a Twitch of sorts and will gaming not just be for players, but will gaming be for audiences as well? Uh, whether it's competitive gaming with esports or whether it's, um, uh, you know, just a, a platform, like a, a game streaming platform where just a bunch of friends can literally hang out and like watch a game together and, uh, you know, just chill out digitally. I think we're seeing a lot of that across gaming, uh, you know, media, entertainment, and just this whole, uh, uh, you know, theme around people with like-minded interests, uh, wanting to have a digital community with which they can uh, connect and uh, engage. I'm glad you brought this subject up because you've also written a blog about it where you've spoken actively about the role of women in uh, the gaming industry. But there are challenges that India faces, right? I mean, we've seen that we are slightly behind when it comes to both tech infrastructure in terms of some of the trends. Women obviously are not actively gaming as much as they are in the rest of the world. And that divide is... Um, only deeper when you head down to middle India or, or um, what we call tier three, tier four cities in the country. Um, have you been seeing a lot lately from a VC perspective where there's a narrative is changing from a tech perspective? Are you coming across companies that are really trying to address this? And what in your opinion needs to really change? And where's the opportunity here? And how can that opportunity really come about? Because You've highlighted some of this in this blog and those who haven't actually read it, I would highly encourage you to go check out Anjali's LinkedIn and there's a blog in there which really talks about this. But um, coming back to this subject, Anjali, talk to us a little bit about yeah. you know, what, where, where, where you no, are just in this. No, thanks for asking that question. I think uh, I, I did write a bunch of blogs on 
giving because I really uh, you know enjoyed the space myself and played like a girl. I remember <laughs> a lot of people reaching out to me for the title. But uh, if you don't mind me talking, in fact, about LOL, which is one of our portfolio companies, and that was a great example of uh, you know a, a company that actually uh, you know started focusing aggressively on the female gaming audience and uh, literally started building games. uh for female players and audiences and i think that is a critical gap that we're seeing in the market the it's not just on the player side i think the audience side i agree is still uh like very very early and I, i think 95% if i remember right of esport audiences are male in india uh so if i can just uh, you know extrapolate that to even the casual gaming side i think there's there's probably no audience layer um but really i think the problem is also on the game development side and the developer side and therefore that talent as well is largely male and you don't see uh, a lot of women game developers and i think uh, we have that with not one but two companies in our um, portfolio we have big fat phoenix where half of the founding team is female they're all like game designers and game developers uh, although they aren't building for female audiences but they are building like video games for for kids that like bring about uh, social emotional learning skills like very unconsciously subconsciously teach kids through gameplay and to play patterns uh, about topics like say the pandemic for example or financial literacy or how to cope with online classes and i think um, that's like an interesting take uh, on gaming as as well and i think firstly it's important not just with gaming but i think with any product that you're trying to build to also have women build that product so that uh you know you are addressing the female audience part as well i think that's probably the first macro statement and to very specifically answer your question come back to lolo which is the second company i mentioned uh lolo is literally currently like trending in the google play store they are like i think ranked in the top 10 number 8 in the lifestyle category and like literally this is like live streaming games for female audiences and you'll actually be um, surprised at the number of women who come every day uh and you know play games like housey and antakshri and so i really think that has you know there's been like a paradigm shift in the last like 15 18 months of course accelerated by covid the fact that people are uh are home they're staring at screens more but i think some of these changes are here uh, to stay and uh, hopefully if some of these companies can continue to build specifically for these uh, audiences i don't see why they wouldn't succeed and why they wouldn't have significant traction i think it's been more a supply issue rather than a demand issue when it comes to games for female audiences today i completely agree with that and we've seen that trend shift rapidly even across the globe especially in quote unquote conservative markets um and we've seen that come about even in the middle east i mean i've followed that story and narrative for quite a bit right now where we have a lot of middle east streamers who might be a great example of breaking stigmas breaking taboos or one being streamers themselves and two really being um unfortunately victims in the past of online abuse and hate given where they come from the kind of families and backgrounds they come from and that's also a big challenge that they have to navigate unfortunately and uh, the sto- the way that stories have panned out the narrative in the middle east is a great example for india as well in terms of what can happen in terms of the market really expanding and once you create that sort of safe haven once we have success stories coming out of there and there are more women gamers streamers um who are emerging on um on an everyday basis whatever scale that it may be 
it's only going to encourage and help more people um come onto the platform be a little more encouraging towards this as a full time profession even part time profession for that matter and really help the gaming industry grow for that um, uh, you know it's it's really important that a lot of things really needs to come about unfortunately for this industry to to really catch up and uh, it's on the rise you know we've seen you talked you talked about it um there's there's i mean there's we've, there's another great example of the uh, if you take a look at how the gaming community in france kind of has grown especially with respect to female gamers it's again a great textbook for us to copy and emulate but more importantly as you mentioned there needs to be an infrastructure play here there needs to be um a fact that you know people like you were really backing uh, and being an advocacy uh, group for reimagining the gaming industry freeing of gender discrimination by addressing culture by addressing the product the way the communities are built and you and i again we discussed about building communities right yeah. the one of the most important thing for communities to be successful is that it needs to be a safe haven and unfortunately online platforms haven't been so for women um lately yeah. historically and i i hope once that changes and it is in a way and given that all the social platforms um like discord like twitch like facebook instagram to an extent have been actively taking down this sort of um how should i put it um brutal attacks on their creators and that will really help build the yeah. the industry once you have a very safe infrastructure um for the creators and the community the community will automatically sustain and grow yeah no agree i think there's like you know missing role models and like fear of sexism and very gender specific you know socialization i think mm-hmm. that's really and you know together with non perception of women um, as a target group are really the reasons for the lack of female participation um i would say and i think what sometime last year the dozens of women came forward to publicly cite you know harassment and abuse across the uh, gaming industry and even facebook gaming and twitch were forced to come out and have like a new set of guidelines to protect gamers from cyberbullying and and really create more inclusive um, communities i would say and we all know about the super smash bros community which became like uh another group with like a plethora of allegations against key players last year that signal by the way that some of these concerns apply to minorities beyond women and uh i think like you said with younger and younger gamers coming online uh i think it's as much the responsibility uh of big tech as it is of up and coming game developers to ensure that these communities are safe and inclusive uh for all yeah that's great and since we're on the subject of you know communities and we spoke about this offline as well i want to bring up the fast forward project right now and really talk about the origin of it because i think it's a great segue and yeah. this is in the past as to why you launched it and what's the whole program about uh, it being such a support system right for um, the seed stage community within india and since we are on the subject of building communities and building an ecosystem that really sustains and helps one another talk to us about it tell our listeners what the fast forward program that you recently launched um does and what is the agenda behind it how did it come about and what have been again some of your learnings especially when it comes to best practices of building communities in india since we are on that subject no i'm i'm 
super excited about you know sharing uh with everyone about fast forward like that's uh, that's been like a pet project and something that took tremendous amount of work research um you know working on best practices globally for seed programs studying some of the best accelerator modules out there um and i think it really stemmed from the fact and as i was mentioning we are emerging managers and we are roughly 6 years into this ecosystem and one of the things that we kept asking ourselves is why does it take a so long to close a deal in india like raising even a half a million check takes months uh it's fairly um complex it's time consuming it's very unsettling for uh, founders many of them first time founders and i think firstly this entire indecisiveness around whether you're going to like hear back from the vc or not and that's possibly like point b i would say where most uh, founders told us that vc inboxes are like black holes you send a mail and you never know when you'll get a response and even if you do you just do like a series of uh meetings from you know all the way from the analyst to the partner you, there isn't a firm yes no decision very simply put and uh i think all of this made us really think about if we have to like really go back to like first principles and like redesign if i may like the seed stage process over here and as we say like seed needs speed um you know how would we want to do this and if we have to enable founders to raise um you know larger rounds faster and earlier what's what's the best program that can enable that and i guess uh, after a lot of like studying some of these models we decided that is pos- there possibly a zillion and one accelerator models and like cohort led models where uh, there are a lot of mentorship sessions and we both were discussing about how mentorship has become so uh, you know everyone is giving gyan to founders these days so we said let's not be just another um accelerator program with no funding commitment at the end of it so we kind of set out to redesign the process and we said um uh, let's do like uh, open call for applications because the other feedback uh, that i missed mentioning was just accessibility to vcs and getting to the right stakeholder or getting to the right partner at the right vc firm itself was a fairly daunting process so what if we like voluntarily put out information uh you know to founders and like publicly stated uh that this is these are our sectors of interest these are our areas of interest these are our partners mapped to these sectors and literally make it a call for applications and with the promise that every application will get a response within 7 days and you will directly pitch to a partner at a vc firm it will be a fully digital online remote process considering covid and a single application enables you to pitch not just to waterbridge but waterbridge will so called be the administrator of the program and we share that application and pitch with 15 other vc funds and with specific founder consent you tell us who you want us to share it with we'll share it so a single application pitch to 15 vc partners and we'll put up our term sheet on the website so before you get on to that partner call you know what our terms are and what our expectations or at least our starting negotiation position is and we specifically tell you this much for this percentage so also bring about fairness and transparency around the deal terms and the construct and enable you to kind of be not only time efficient but also make this um you know like you said literally create a community of sorts not just amongst like 15 like minded vcs who are all coming together to commit on these stats and commit on these slas and straight to to being efficient on founder time but also make it 
you know, truly founder first, I would say. And that's that's what we set out to do. Uh, we, we've made over six investments in Fast Forward. It is a seed program. So the promise of the program is up to half a million dollars in seed funding within 30 days. Uh, like I said, the term sheets is something I've shared with you. It's published on the Fast Forward website. And uh, it's not just Waterbridge. Waterbridge typically leads and we enable you to build larger rounds together with our partner VCs. So there is actually a potential of raising up to a million, million point five um, at the seed stage. We also publish the sectors uh, that we are bullish um, on and we allow you to punch in a partner of preference to pitch to so that you know that the right um, sector expert is attending your pitch. And that's really how we sought to like uh, you know, differentiate ourselves and to really create a one-of-a-kind uh, grandfather's seed program of sorts, if I may. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up and shared a little bit more about the program. So thank you for that. I had a follow-up, which was in terms of building and structuring an initiative like this, as great as it is and near the hour for sure. What are the challenges in building a community like this? Because, for instance, you promise in getting back in seven days, there's investment uh, decision that's taken in two weeks' time, and there's a promise of money in the bank at the end of the month. How difficult is it to keep everybody accountable to being a little more streamlined and efficient? Because I'm sure at the outset, building a program like this, a lot of people who came together would have obviously been on board uh, with this sort of a structure and setup. But in reality, when things actually set things off, it's difficult to sustain that. So from a program management perspective and ensuring that you live up to the promises made, talk to us about how you're able to get all the other VCs also bought into this sort of a model and how does that really play into the bigger and larger macro picture that you're hoping to build with the fund that you have, which obviously looks into all the consumer sectors that we talked about. No, thanks for asking that question. I think uh, not many people realize the months of effort and planning that uh, go into you know each cohort of Fast Forward and every time we announce it. But I think it literally starts months ahead and this time Fast Forward ran uh, through April and the planning starts as far back as January. And uh, so of course it's planned to the last detail, but I think I would say three, four key points. One is, you really need when you're operating at that kind of scale by like literally receiving six, seven, eight hundred applications in a single month with, like you said, the promise to respond to every single application. Uh, you have to productize the process. And I think we uh, I'd like to believe that we follow a lot of the advice that we give founders. So as a VC as well, we're very tech led. So like I said, we, we use like an application management system. We use like a CRM. So we literally when I say productize, even the entire process management is done like very technical and efficient, but more importantly, uh, you know, folks in the fund, we dedicate our time to this program. And that's the bit maybe many people don't get sitting from the outside, but that's the level of planning and commitment that goes into it for like these many days and hours, like the entire firm is dedicated to, uh, to the seed program. Uh, we also really, select our, again, uh, select our partners wisely, I would say. And there's a reason I said like-minded partners because when we pick the VC funds that we want to work with, we obviously have several conversations with them, but these are really 
uh, funds that genuinely want to create this ecosystem and this collaborative uh, environment in you know at the seed stage and we have really therefore picked like a good mix of angel syndicates that bring their own strengths onto the table because seed stage founders require significantly more uh, officers handholding mentorship you know board attention time etc and therefore having like either a micro vc or an angel syndicate with us as a partner and having one of you know them with us in the cap table gives us that extra pair of eyes ears hands to uh, you know enable that founder scale up and growth journey um, as well i think that was the first category micro vcs and angel syndicates we also partnered with a whole bunch of industry focused vc funds and obviously again coming back to the value add construct in terms of it's just not waterbridge as the lead um, if you are like a global uh, you know healthcare company for example we have pureland as a partner that's like a global singapore based healthcare focused fund so you know choose them as as the partner to come on so i think we also chose very wisely very industry focused vc funds that we were clear that um, again going back to being founder first and what really is the value that this program is building and i guess the final thing was just also working beyond just the vc ecosystem and we literally looped in a lot of corporates we got in the best of the best uh you know cloud and saas companies to partner with us we got everyone from microsoft to cisco to accenture to even wipro to like partner with us to say that hey can you again spend time uh get like a vip entry if i may into their own accelerator programs for these companies can you enable gtm can they get access to uh, uh, you know your your leadership and so really it was um, a lot of this that went together at the back end so that when a founder actually came to pitch at fast forward he or she was able to recognize the effort that went into it and the very distinct value add that the program brings to them and to your point on how do you really get everyone to agree to doing a deal uh, i think we it's important that uh, i think fairness and transparency was a core tenant and it was important that we all agreed on the base terms and that was the reason we could uh you know put out a term sheet there share a term sheet there with founder saying this is our expectation if you think it's still worth your time or worth your time please like you know jump onto that zoom call and so that expectation setting again is super important which is already done ahead of time saying that this is broadly going to be what the construct uh, is and therefore it was really like i said planned to the t uh, with base terms already agreed like an expectation set already in in place and combined with a very tech led productized process which enables you to really process uh, you know that volume of deals and for us fast forward is really a differentiated uh, highly specialized i would say evaluation lens where uh, because of the fact that we're able to nail down the sectors of interest and because of the fact that we're able to leverage on the strength of our partnerships uh, we're able to say no and coming back to founders always wanting a firm yes no decision really quickly we in fact also run a founder nps um, across all these thousands of applicants and uh, what founders told us when we asked for feedback on the on the recently completed program was exactly that founder said we want a firm yes no decision super fast and that was top of mind what stood out for them about the fast forward program they got a yes or no investment decision in a week's time that is great that's great to hear that the structure is really been helping and coming together in on multiple fronts and getting a lot of other vcs also stoked about it and 
very curious about how this again plays out in terms of the narrative shift that you and I spoke about earlier in the conversation as well that we really need fast decisions to be made and the fact that some VCs today are taking up well, over six months to really come up with the decision and then coming up with these bunch of clauses and and different pro- provisions that they that they feel that they're undertaking to make an investment is really not helping the founders because it's a full-time job fundraising is full-time and no matter what amount it is you're back on your feet again the very next day and thinking about building a company and going back about raising your next round so it's very important that these decisions be made soon and i'm glad that there's a program out there in the industry that's actually helping early stage founders and i think it's that support system that's also very that's very essential at the at the early stages and it gives founders a lot of confidence if you if it takes you a lot of time to just raise your first round or the mm-hmm. second round i guess there's a lot, there's a there's some sort of insecurity and self doubt given how much activity there is happening in and around these founders today when you look at how the industry really you know is 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 gloating about some of the investments that are taking place across the across the landscape it really makes founders especially those who are building companies first time very insecure about their own fundraise and this is a real thing and i don't think it gets talked about enough i hope uh, more people are able to come and talk about their fundraising experience a lot of people don't do that for the fear that they're either going to make their current investors or the people that they've spoken with um, angry but there needs to be more transparency in terms of how the fundraising narrative in india needs a massive change uh, and i think you also would agree with this and um, this initiative definitely should help a lot lot more founders and a lot more learnings will come out of it i'm very confident in the coming years yeah for sure i think uh, it's baby steps for us as well i'm sure we'll keep you know reiterating as we move forward with more and more cohorts etc and i think one bold step forward we have taken is really what we were discussing about some of these deal terms and this entire cap table building being so opaque at such an early stage and um so i think if some of us vcs were able to you know, i always joke with founders that vcs are at the end of the day run by real people and these are relationships that you're setting out to build um so if not for this round the next round and the next and i think i was trying to look up some statistics and as i was telling you i think average seven investors in the cap table of most of uh, uh, you know scaled indian startups which means that Uh, it's very rare for you to just have to manage one or two investors, and as you scale and grow, and as your board expands from two and three to six and nine, and uh, you'll have to kind of learn to deal with uh, a various variety of uh, investors. So I think uh, I hope, just like how some of us are trying to change the narrative on the early stage VC ecosystem side, that like as you said, a lot of founders come forward as well and share their um, experiences with us, and it comes back to. some of the you know survey feedback that we got from fast forward it was very telling in how it just stood out that uh, time is of the essence and we really uh, you know firstly appreciate that every application is getting a response but also it comes back to also point of specific responses right the other thing about founder vc relationships is that it's uh, either you don't get a response at all or the vc keeps engaging with you for like prolonged periods of time and just remains indecisive um, about it or it's you just get a straight pass without knowing how or why and i think all three issues need to be addressed at some level and 
this is like our way of taking, I would say, small baby steps so towards that. But yeah, still, still a long, long way to go. And fingers crossed and sending you a lot of good wishes and uh, optimistic about how this program uh, unfolds over the coming years as well. And, you know, as a segue, I want to ask you this question. I think we kickstarted this initially as well. I'm interested to learn about your experience from a fundraising perspective, both pre-pandemic and what's happening right now. And uh, again, offline, we talked about this. We talked about the challenges that the wave one brought about, the challenges that the second wave is now um, showing us. And you're not too far away from um, thinking about your third fund. How has this changed the conversations internally with the partners at the fund? How have you been internalizing this and thinking about your own personal fundraising from an LP perspective? And has that really changed the strategy? Has that really changed anything from a thesis perspective, keeping the fund three in focus? Yeah, I think from, I'll answer the second part first about uh, change in investment strategy and thesis building. I think uh, one thing that we have stayed, uh, you know, true to is the fact that I was mentioning earlier as well about just continuing to stay focused in the sectors that we understand the most and that where we believe uh, we bring in uh, all our strengths from a, not just a network perspective, but uh, also from a value-add uh, perspective. So I think we really model ourselves around, I would say, like a union square in the US where we believe like 100 mil is the right fund size. And that's, we do like 20, max 25-ish investment out of each fund and that's what we'll keep doing so therefore we'll keep going out there and raising 100 million funds I think that's that's what we intend to do uh, I don't think there's real change in the investment strategy um, I think with the early stage investing ecosystem despite the pandemic what you really back are founders and sectors and we tend to put founders ahead of sectors or founders ahead of markets and over there I think from a risk-taking ability, um, you're fundamentally betting on like the stellar founding team in a space that you're um, you strongly believe in. And that's when you expect the magic to happen. And I think that will continue uh, for us. So from a sector perspective, we'll continue staying focused on the six sectors um, uh, that we have always done from fund one and fund two. And as well from an investment strategy, like I said, we always aim to build out uh, $100 million funds and continue to restrict ourselves to doing like a small portfolio, high value add kind of an approach. So it will always be 20 to 25 investments um, per fund. Uh, it'll be, you know, four, four of us. So like four or five investments uh, for each of us. And therefore uh, the time spent, and we were discussing this earlier in terms of what do you mean to the fund, right? From a founder perspective, how much hard work will the fund do for you and what's your own importance and relevance to the fund portfolio. I think, um, I hope fund founders begin to see that and appreciate that with some of us as emerging VCs. And uh, also for us, portfolio construction is really important as a result because we, we, we're going to limit ourselves to having like a, like I said, a 20 to 25 portfolio. So we won't be taking, say, competing uh, bets, et cetera. And Therefore, that enables us to stay focused on those six, seven sectors that we're bullish on and continue to um, 
invest in them and evolve our thesis i would say just like how i was narrating the consumer thesis similarly uh, we have like an edtech 3.0 and on the say the b to small b as we call it which is uh, the india sme mid market it's still like early days for us and it's like a 1.0 kind of a thesis so i think our sectors will stay the same and our thesis will continue evolving but within uh, within these broad uh, six sectors i like that thanks for uh, sharing a little bit more about how the fund thesis development has has come about especially since the first time that you raised the fund to where it is right now and one of the questions that i'm trying to put forth to most of my guests right now is understanding the red flags because often when we talk to vcs and i'm guilty of this as well and i've done that in the first few uh, or the first half of all my episodes is we talk about the things that they look for in um founders and in companies and often it's the standard answers that you get right it's the founding team it's the hustle the given the fact that how much conviction that they have there's a little bit of a market play but what i'm also trying to understand at this point from a vc perspective or what are some of the big red flags for them because sectors might be hot founders might be great the opportunity might be extremely extremely enticing but there are certain things that you will not cross your own lines on so keeping that in mind from your personal experience you could also probably talk to what the other partners at the fund also think and it could be a very fund specific answer or it could be a very personal answer as well what are the red flags in your opinion because if there are founders listening to this the i i really want them to take away two things one a very general perspective on some of the big red flags that vcs definitely keep in mind and two when it comes to fundraising there are a lot of mistakes that founders still continue to make given there's abundance of information sometimes that can lead to a lot of confusion so a lot of young founders don't really know what's the best strategy and it, there is no one fit for all sort of an answer here but if we were to nail it down if you were to narrow it down to a couple of maybe points a couple of things that you know that really make you take a back seat and say you know what great opportunity you're a great founder but this is just not the right deal for us not the right time but just not the right deal for us what would you highlight those things to be yeah very very interesting um question i would say and uh, i think just very specific to founders since your question was largely on founders rather than markets um, and i'm just trying to think of the way Uh, we ourselves would like quickly put a lens and evaluation lens and start i think in general of course you try to meet as i like to call the most prepared founders when they come and like pitch to you and again we are early we are seed stage so there often isn't any revenue there isn't a meaning uh, you know meaningful customer base and any business metrics so forget like trying to objectively measure or analyze anything so we are literally crystal ball gazing uh you know and like i said trying to not only catch trends early but trying to see if this is the founding team uh that can solve this problem within this sector so i think those are the three parts that we are trying to uh you know stitch together for us personally and it's interesting and i'm just going to be a little honest here and saying that uh, we tend to back uh, founders who are uh, and you know as since i was like the newest uh, 
uh, and you know, uh, like I was late to the Waterbridge party as we joke internally, but since I was in US Pacta to join, I mean, I was first kind of retrospecting and trying to analyze patterns in our portfolio. I kind of realized that, hey, we have either backed second time founders or we've backed tenured professionals. And so can we do a little bit of thinking over this um, uh, or is this like a blind spot? So, and I think it got all of us together and we did a you know, bunch of brainstorming and then we said, okay, fine, let's uh, you know, deep dive into this. And I think for us, therefore, as a result of that exercise, one thing that really came out in the way we crystal ball gave or the way we evaluate our founders is really their opportunity cost and learnability index, I would say, right? And uh, opportunity cost, of course, is very easy to measure with tenure founders, um, at least like these are founders and professionals who have like top of their game uh, at like large companies. And now they're like breaking out and starting up uh, ideally within the same sector. So things like we spoke about earlier on employee culture building, on talent um, uh, attraction, all of that are like the easier parts of the puzzle to solve with this set of founders, but things like cap table building, fundraising is where they need the handholding and the mentorship from, from us. And then with, um, I think the second time founders, it's the inverse, right? They've been through, uh, you know, the rookie mistakes in their first avatar and we don't judge them on what their commercial outcomes were in their first or second or in number of startup, prior startup. Um, attempts they know the zero to one journey and the hardships and the hurdles and how difficult it is to get through that and over there it's really founder scalability uh, and the learnability uh, you know index and of course we always ask how well do you understand uh, the market and I think some sectors are easier to call compared to others but if I have to give you a very specific sector example I think with say D2C um, I would say for example what I mean by that is as a founder, have you firstly faced that problem firsthand and in a D2C situation, you'll see a lot of founders coming to you saying that, hey, I couldn't find this product in the market. So I thought I'll like start up on my own and I'll create this, uh, create this product. And then the question is really for us to ask is, uh, you know, say if it's like a beauty product, like Ayurvedic color cosmetics product, just taking a random example. And the questions we really ask is, uh, have you do you come from an FMCG background? Do you know distribution? Do you know supply chain? Do you know chemical compositions, creations? Uh, you know, do you do you know who to go to? Do you know how to build out, you know, warehousing, all of that, like customer acquisition, D2C. I think those are some of the questions we ask around the operational challenges of building and scaling a business like this. And is there founder experience in there? And those things I believe are are critical because with the tiny sums of seed money that you raise, uh, you're really expected to give uh, outsized uh, outcomes and there's no time to waste. You can't budget in cost of, uh, you know, mistakes into seed rounds. So I think that's uh, critical again, while we evaluate uh, founders. And then I think we always look for unique insights. Again, the benefit of being very sector focused, uh, each of our, you know, each of us as partners being sector focused, is that we also come with years of experience in that space. We've had like ringside views to how some of these sectors have evolved. And literally as a, as a VC, one of the great privileges, I think of the role is just the sheer number of deals and business models that you see on a daily basis. And the privilege of just um, you know seeing or citing or analyzing and identifying some of these patterns early. So you, you really are in a position to know whether something is genuinely unique and insightful or not. 
and i think that's something i always like seek to search for in in a pitching what are you telling me about this space that we don't already uh, know and you know and we mean out in the future don't tell us about historical trends you know we have google and traction for that but tell us about uh, you know what are you seeing uh, you know what are the emerging uh, early trends and i think that's what we always ask have you done primary customer research have you spoken to a set of uh, early adopters users uh, are you getting deep customer love yet or not and i think i would say just the approach they're going to take and what's the like unique insights and evidence of this deep customer love that you can share with us that we have not heard from anyone else before and so yeah i think these would be my top 3 founding team and their opportunity cost learnability index uh, how well do you understand the uh, you know the operational angle of actually building and scaling uh, this business and and finally what's what are the unique insights that you're giving us uh, that makes us believe that you are the right team to solve this i love that i love that you had you almost had this as a ready answer it just goes to show that you definitely have a list <laughs> you perhaps will obviously fall back upon when you're looking at this kind of, of, of looking at companies and all founders in my opinion should have a superpower right they need to do something better than almost anyone else in the world um uh, maybe that's acquiring customers it could be recruiting it could be anything it comes to building companies um raising money for that matter from from vcs and all the founders especially the one who will assume most of the public facing role should strike you as an exceptional and special person and there has to be something about them that moves you personally at least when i meet founders for me this has been very hard to put into my own list but they do have to have a spirit and presence that kind of compels you to listen to and care about and that same presence in my opinion will be the one that allows them to raise money com- convince their own employees to work for them where they have when they especially when they have a lot of other options right now and going back to what we talked about yeah. you know in strength building bench strength for that matter um really comes back full circle now that we're talking about it and then selling to customers building partnerships um <laughs> giving press interviews as well given that a lot of founders today are brand <laughs> building they're trying to build their own personal brands beyond just company brands this is not one right way to really come off as a special but an extroverted person sometimes um kind of has a little bit of an upper hand but you know not to say that on the extroverted on, on the introverted side we we don't we've seen a lot of founders who have taken a back seat especially when it comes to public facing world but they really have some things that really stands out that makes them a little more um resilient a little more attractive um as we spoke about and that's really important i'm glad that you have a list um and i'm i would be very curious to have this same discussion with you maybe like 12 months or 24 months from now given yeah, to see how it's evolved yeah to see how it's evolved to yeah. see if there are certain things that i mean yeah either you've added to your list or there are certain things that you've deleted from it because you know <laughs> well you you asked me for top i think you asked me for top 3 so i was just trying to get like okay let me give him three points but i think it just comes down to the point that i mean founders are pretty much the only tangible part of a early stage business right like like i was saying i think even if you look at our own portfolio we've made like 24 investments so far and uh, i think all of them were pre revenue many of them were pre product and some of them were even just uh, people who were just breaking out like i said of those you know those unicorn breakout teams who were just like literally just an idea and a ppt when they pitched to us and didn't even have a company incorporated so yeah 
we have to over-index on you as a founder. Absolutely. And uh, that's why it's you know, so important. Uh, it, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, whether you're, like I said, you're just a fresh student or you're a tenured professional or previous startup. Like, I think it, what really matters is what is your unfair advantage and how long can you keep that unfair advantage? I think that's, that's what like we, we really try to get. And absolutely right what you said about uh, storytelling. That was really what you were speaking about. It's just about um, yeah. you know, being able to, not just for you to believe in your own uh, vision and your own story, but to be able to very eloquently articulate that and convey that to not just your investors, but to all stakeholders coming back to that point of discussing, can you translate that vision to yeah. your early employees and will everyone in your ecosystem and all your sh- you know stakeholders uh, you know share your belief? And I think that's that's what is really critical um, uh, at that stage. Totally agree with that. And one other thing that kind of stands out from my own personal um, checklist and since we're sharing is that how well do they understand the economics? You know, by that, I don't mean if they can correctly predict revenues for like the next five years or 24 months or whatever it is, but can they really deconstruct their thinking around how valuable they expect their customers to be? How much will it cost to acquire the customers? How can they expect to price their product? How did they arrive at the estimated burn rate? They don't need to turn to their finance person, especially during these meetings and be like, oh, now you take over. I think everybody in the team, especially the executive, and if you're just two co-founders at the end of the day, it would help if both of them really understood how the economics worked out and you're not really looking for the other person and saying, oh, why don't you take over since you're the CEO and I'm just the technical co-founder here. Now, like, no, it really helps if both people are able to understand one can speak to it, but it'll be great if both of them can really understand how they're going to build up their companies, especially given you and I work in early stage, we will work in consumer tech, which is rapidly changing as we previously discussed. Yeah. And what levers and what have you like really stress tested your assumptions, right? What levers change with time? What costs are linear and all? I think that's like super important to have a point of view and rather than understanding earlier on on how your PNL will evolve like three years out five years out uh, and that's that's like super critical because um, I, I mean I also think that if you really back the most stellar team they'll end up uh, you know they'll at least be smart enough to pivot and prevail if not uh, you know not just survive but thrive as we say and uh, find like they literally find a way to pivot prevail and just build a long-lasting uh, you know, enduring business. And I guess that's that's when some of these things uh, uh, and, you know, some of these talents come like super handy and critical. Completely agree with it. And I couldn't have found a better question or a note to end this episode on. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, Anjali. We've discussed so much on this podcast. We've had a chance to go deep into your thesis, really understood what the fund has been doing during the pandemic, the second wave, talked about red flags most recently. I've had a ball. It's been great in terms of understanding your own personal journey in venture capital. And I'm really excited about these initiatives that you're launching with Fast Forward and some of the other stuff that we spoke about on the community front as well. And I'm looking forward to some of the successes, some of the learnings, and uh, hope to have you back soon on the episode, sometime soon in the future so that we can deconstruct how all of this is panned out for you and the fund. 
No, thank you. Thank you so much um, for having me. Likewise, just tremendously enjoyed chatting. Didn't didn't realize we'll end up chatting for so long, and it's fairly early for you. So thank you so much for just keeping this such a meaningful and engaging conversation, and for asking some I think tough, brilliant, and wonderfully relevant uh, questions. And yeah, look look forward to keeping in touch, and all the very best to you as well, Akash. That was a great restart, and Anjali had so much to share about the ongoing COVID crisis and its impact on their portfolio, community development, thesis, and fundraising. It goes to show the unpredictability nature of venture and how it just doesn't affect founders. VCs need to constantly be on their feet and ever ready for all the surprises that come their way. Thank you so much, Anjali, for sharing your learnings. And as I previously mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we'll be bringing more episodes with emerging fund managers and shed more light on the diverse nature of the Indian venture capital landscape. So if you'd like to be notified of the same, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button. And while you're at it, also drop us a review and share this podcast with as many people as possible who you think will enjoy it. Stay tuned for the upcoming guests. And before I leave you, I'd urge you to be safe and as things are easing up and opening in the coming days, be careful as you return back to normalcy. See you next week. And if you do have any thoughts and feedback, do share it with me on Twitter and Instagram. Take care, everybody.